Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And with me today, as always, is Nathan Fox in L.A., I assume. Yep, L.A. Okay, and we have special guest Anne Levine, the LSAT expert. Uh, Anne, where are you? Not an LSAT expert. You guys are the LSAT experts. Oh, did I say LSAT expert? Well, (laughs) I I don't want to be an LSAT expert. I'm going to give that to you. Yeah, okay, thanks. Uh, The (laughs) expert. I'm sorry. My mind is... uh, It's all good. So anyways, yeah, where are you, Anne? Santa Barbara, about, I don't know, 100 miles or so from wherever Nathan is. Awesome. I'm jealous of you guys. I'm assuming it's really warm there. Probably in LA, yes. But not Santa Barbara. It's okay. It's okay, but we don't have two feet of snow, so it's all good. Good. Well, cool. Well, we're excited to have you on the show. Of course, we're going to have to jump in and talk about what the heck Harvard is doing. We have a ton of emails, so we'll be going through all of those. I don't know how many we can get through. Uh, We have an essential record correction, a mistake that I made last time, Uh, some questions about quantifiers. Uh, Those are words like some, most, and all. We have... Some support from Nassim Taleb's anti-fragile for our repeated admonition to slow down. So that'll be interesting. But let's jump into this Harvard thing, unless you guys have anything else you want to say. But I think this is what's on everyone's minds right now, right? Yeah. So for those uh, who um, have been under a rock for the last uh, few days, um, Harvard came out with an announcement that it would accept the GRE in lieu of the LSAT uh, for law school applicants. And not solely, they'll still accept the LSAT. Don't panic, guys. You, you're not out of jobs. But <laughs> um, but th- they're also going to consider the, the GRE for those who have not taken the LSAT. So this is problematic. This is exciting and interesting, but it's also problematic. And I think that it's first important to look at the reasons why Harvard would do such an odd thing. Now, for the record, they're not the first to do it. Um, Arizona did it. No data yet on how that worked out for them. It's a new program, or at least no data that I'm aware of. But, uh, you know, when Harvard does something, people pay attention. And that's sort of what's scariest about this. So so let's um, go through it, shall we? Yeah. All right. I've been waiting for this, by the way. I, oh, yeah. I'm sure you didn't sleep all night. No, I mean, for like weeks, because when, when this news came out, I yeah. just didn't know what to think about it. And so I've been very excited to talk to the to both of you so that I can figure out what the hell I'm supposed to think about it. So Yeah. <laughs> anyway. And I, I did actually just last night post um, an article on my blog on lawschoolexpert.com backslash blog um, with some thoughts on it as well, because I wanted a few days to compose my own thoughts on it, not um, just give a, a gut reaction. So, so I've had some time to think about it. So here, here are some thoughts. So first of all, um, why is Harvard doing this? Harvard is doing this because the statistics show there have been fewer people taking the LSAT who score at the highest ranges of the LSAT. So Harvard's applicant pool has had to change because the, the, there's been a significant decrease in the number of people hitting 174s and up. Um, and also, by the way, in the, I think it was the 165 to 169 range has also slowed down, um, whereas the, the bracket in between has stayed fairly steady um, year over year. My hypothesis would be that the reason for that is that the total number of test takers has declined pretty precipitously. But it's not proportional throughout than the brackets of... Um, so if that were the case, there would be fewer people at each level of the test to, uh-huh. at, at each score bracket. But that's not the case? The biggest drop has happened at the top. Okay, so so that's what 
is that's why Harvard is concerned because those people are going into investment banking or consulting high-end fields, right? Um, they're taking the top people from top schools and luring them away from um, law school because A, uh, law school is expensive and they can already be earning six figures right out of college. And in addition, you know, the, their career prospects at the end of law school, uh, dollars-wise, uh, aren't really all that better than what they can do otherwise uh, in, in the fields they're already being hired in. So, so that's one of the reasons for this. Now, and that can't be ignored. And what's interesting is that that's not, of course, what Harvard says the reason is. Harvard says they're trying to increase access to legal education because the LSAT has, you know, a few flaws. But one is that the LSAT is really the only test of its kind that's only offered four times a year, which is ridiculous and behind the times and in the dark ages. That's what happens when you don't have any competition and you don't ever have to evolve and change and grow, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the it's a dinosaur. Yeah. It, it's a dinosaur. And um, I mean, the LSAT is not that much different than when I took it in 1995, which is totally pathetic. So, I mean, I'm sure you'll tell me the question types are different, but the way you go in and take the test other than needing six kinds of ID has not really changed. Um, I will um, tell you that the question types haven't changed either since 1995. Well, no, not dramatically, <laughs> no. <laughs> Harvard says also that um, if people are considering both grad school and law school, that it's a financial burden for them to take both tests. But most people are not considering grad school and law school right out of college at the same time. They're just not. And if they are, then they must not really want to go to law school. One thing that they said on the Above the Law blog that I really agree with is that the one of the good things about the LSAT is if you go through the process of studying for and taking the LSAT, you must want to go to law school. There's no other reason to take that test unless you want to be Nathan Fox or Ben Olson when you grow up. Okay. So, because you could have really skipped the whole law school thing, Nathan, you didn't really need to go. So anyway, you're telling me. I'm telling you now. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, know, if you called me two years ago, but yeah. anyway, I mean that—that's really <clears throat> one of the points of the LSAT is at least the people taking it have an investment in going to law school. They're not doing this as a default decision. So, so that's a little diet, the little you know um, bit on this. There, I wrote more on the blog, but the key here is how does this impact? Um, law school applicants, right? Like, is this a good thing for law school applicants or a bad thing for law school applicants? What is the impact? The thing is, I don't think Harvard's really going to accept all that many people based on their GRE scores alone. And what I think is that overall, this is really going to hurt most applicants. It might help that applicant who's already working in IP law or in engineering, who has a recent GRE score, who's been thinking about getting a law degree and doesn't have time to study for the LSAT and is really an outstanding candidate for Harvard in every other aspect that person's going to benefit. Okay. But that's not most people. And it's not most people listening to your podcast. What I think the downside of this for applicants is that, I mean, in my experience, most applicants, you know, see these things as being openings for themselves that they're, they're really not openings, um, in all honesty. So I think what's going to happen is Harvard's going to get thousands more applications than it already does from people who will never be qualified to go to Harvard because they'll think, Oh, but I got a master's from, Please don't be insulted, anyone. I don't know. Random state university in sports management or recreational science. And I've taken the GRE. So now Harvard's going to think that's important and look at me. And so Harvard's going to get all these, you know, a, a whole bunch of applications. Good for them. But the key question here is how will what Harvard does impact other law schools? And so will this be part of a bigger future trend where the LSAT will be less important? There's a few aspects to that. So one is that... Harvard has said this is a pilot program, so they're going to try it out and see what happens. So until Harvard sort of experiments with that, I think it's, and, and perhaps releases data to the other law schools on what happened, 
it's, it's unlikely to trickle down quickly. The other aspect is this, you know, Harvard says they based this on a survey of its students and how they did on the um, GRE, those students at Harvard Law who took the GRE, and how that correlated with their success at Harvard. But I don't think that's a fair thing for other law schools to follow because people who get into Harvard are not just getting in based on their LSAT score or their GRE score or, you know, their standardized testing ability. They also have a lot of other things going for them. And so I don't think what happens at Harvard translates well down to um, other law schools. You know, maybe it would work at the top few, but that, that those same statistics aren't going to be applicable at top 100 schools or, or lower. We'll see what happens. Overall, if other law schools do this, it will increase the applicant pool. Okay, that's number one. But the extent to which law schools are going to rely on this is, is going to be what will be interesting to see. They won't have to report that data for rankings. So it's, it's, this, is, this is a grand experiment. But I don't think the LSAT is going anywhere anytime soon. Um, I think that the LSAT, LSAT prep is still going to be something that law school applicants choose to do um, because the GRE is scary too. You know, even yeah. though it's more accessible, you can take it more often you can't really escape. I mean, there's math on that test, right? I mean, <laughs> I can talk a little bit about the GRE. I took the GRE Please. before I did my uh, useless master's in journalism. So I'm one of those people that you might be talking about who, oh, I already have a good GRE score, so I'll just throw in an application. Uh, this There is a quantitative section. If you suck at math, you're going to suck at the GRE. Uh, if you killed the SAT, you're probably going to also kill the GRE. My take is if you can do really well on the GRE, you can do well on the LSAT as well. So it does seem to me that it makes things a little bit easier for people to, hey, I, you know, four years ago, I thought I was going to do a master's in public policy or a master's in public health. And or maybe I did do a master's in something or other. I have this really good GRE score. I can totally see why Harvard would say, hey, you know what? That's good enough for us. We don't need to make you prep for the stupid LSAT if you already crushed the GRE. I mean, really, if you can score 99th percentile on the GRE, you can also score 99th percentile on the LSAT. The LSAT is still a good measure of a lot of things related to law school. Um, it, and, and, and if you really hate the LSAT, you're probably going to hate law school. For sure. I mean, I think there's a correlation there. Um you know, if you don't enjoy figuring out problems and if you don't enjoy reading and figuring out what something's about and what they're trying to say and how to use words appropriately and, and correctly <laughs> and effectively, you shouldn't go to law school. I mean, I, that, that's just how I feel about it. So I see value in the LSAT. Um, I think the LSAT, I'm hoping this is a call to action and make some changes. But if you're a law school applicant applying to law school, you know, for fall, for fall 2018, I don't think you change anything about your strategy based on what Harvard just did. Plus, it's just Harvard. And nobody who really wants to go to law school should just apply to Harvard. Yeah. That's dumb. You want to go to law school, you apply to law schools, plural. So so I would just put that out there. I would also say if you're someone who, I've gotten some questions from people who are currently applying to law school right now and in an application cycle and getting results and making decisions. Well, and now that they'll take my GRE score, should I not go to law school this year and reapply to Harvard with my GRE score? I mean, look, if you weren't getting into Harvard with your LSAT score, you're not getting in with your GRE score. Yeah. So, so I would just say, you know, make good decisions for you. And, and this probably has no effect on anyone listening to your podcast because they're already invested in studying for the LSAT. 
I don't think you guys have to look for new jobs anytime soon. <laughs> Hold up one second here. I have to to step back and think about this. It, it feels to me like you're saying this is not going to matter for those who are currently applying and, and looking to the near future. And I, I have to completely agree with that. But I, I think in the future, I think, and not too far away necessarily, if if this does open up the number of applicants, which it seems like it definitely would, because I don't see a difference in accepting someone who scored in the 90th percentile on the GRE versus the 90th percentile on the LSAT or something close to that. So I feel like there's this huge incentive for schools to start accepting it. And once you start accepting it, there's no real going back because then you're, again, limiting your application pool. And as soon as people start accepting that the U.S. News and World Report is just going to change how they base their ranking. And so you can turn around and start buying rankings with people who apply with GRE scores. It seems like this is kind of once it starts, assuming it gets out of the pilot program, there's no going back. Ben, I think that this is a good point, but you're forgetting how slowly legal education changes. Yeah, but right now they're they're suffering. They're bleeding. They don't have they're, enough applicants. It's not that so, bad. It's just not that bad. What this is going to do is it might... Wait, um, wait. Who's it not bad for? It's bad for the vast majority of schools out there. They're dropping their admission standards. This is one way to increase the number of applicants without necessarily dropping your standards. Agreed. What I mean is you're assuming that all of a sudden within a short period of time, all law schools are going to jump on board. And I think it takes law schools a very long time to change and to agree to change, for faculties to agree to change, for boards of regents to agree to change. For that shift to happen, it's going to have to happen over a pretty extended period of time. You know, just think about the debate over should there be two-year law school, right? And how a couple of schools tried it and it didn't really, it doesn't really pan out for most schools, right, who try it, especially mm-hmm. the top school that tried it, Northwestern, Right. Um, Brooklyn, like these programs are not catching on, but they tried it and it didn't catch on. Then there's, you know, the the issue of, you know, th- th- this happens a lot. I mean, there are a number of examples of this. Law school, you know, revolution happens more slowly than revolution elsewhere. And I think that if that catches on, great, okay. But I don't see it as being immediate at all. I think we're going to have to see it. I think whatever results Harvard sees from this are not necessarily the same results that the schools that are hurting the most will see from this. Okay. This may never hurt Harvard that they're doing this, but taking applicants with GRE scores at, you know, bottom 100 schools is going to change bar passage rates. It is because you're not talking about people who score well on standardized tests. So, or particularly well on standardized tests, they might score well enough. So, just keep keep that in mind. Like, what works for Harvard doesn't work everywhere. Because law schools yeah, want to I mean, graduate people who are going to pass the bar and who are going to be happy alumni. I guess I feel like the same incentives that encourage Arizona to look at accepting the GRE are going to be the same incentives that everyone has been thinking about, but afraid to take that step. And now that Harvard has they're going to have that that motivation. I, I don't know. I just It seems like an easy way to... How many people apply to a typical law school, say like in the, you know, the, the mid, not the top tier law schools, but say something in the 20s and 30s? 
how many applicants? Yeah. Thousands, I mean, thousands to 10,000. I mean, let's call it five to 10,000, depending on the school. Okay, good. So we have, let's say, let's say we have 10,000 just to keep it simple. If you start accepting the GRE, <laughs> you know, what's that? How, how, how much is that going to go up? Who knows? Maybe it only goes up to 12,000 or something like that, but that's 2,000 more applicants who m might actually fit your sort of standards or what you're trying to meet in terms of those standards as opposed to lowering your standards by accepting people who have lower scores. Yes, and what we're going to have to see is when if schools try this, do their bar pass rates change? And well, that, wait, why, would, why would they change if you accept someone who has a better, because you know, it hasn't better score yet on the been GRE? Proven, it hasn't yet been proven that there's a correlation between GRE and bar passage. I just don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, you're talking people who perform well on one kind of standardized test are going to perform well on another. I the just bar isn't a standardized different. test. The bar is a knowledge-based test. And I don't disagree with that, but I don't think that that argument makes the LSAT obsolete. Well, I, I don't think it becomes obsolete. I think it just op increases the number of applicants who can apply. So I think schools... Right. Well, I think we all agree on that, right? That's that's why schools would do it. But yeah. my only point going back a few minutes is that I just don't think it's going to happen overnight. I don't well, think this I, is I a revolution. Think, yeah, I don't think it'll happen, happen this overnight. year, but I think it could happen within like two years. I, I, I see if I, if I was a dean at a law school and I'm like, wow, Harvard just did this and now they're able to look at more applicants and I need to look at more applicants who are better qualified, I would be. So, so what's the problem with that? Like what's, what's your issue with that? I don't have an issue with that. Oh, okay. I'm just saying that I think this is going to happen faster than it sounds like. I think you think it's going to happen. I, and, I, that, and that might be And either way. A lot um, faster. Yeah, and that, you know, I sort of hope you're right, to be honest with you. I mean, I think if it pans out that applicants can be successful in law school with a GRE score that's percentile-wise equivalent to an LSAT score, then great, wonderful, fabulous. I think anything that shakes this up is sort of a good thing, which is not characteristic of me to say. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I think anything that spurs the um, LSAC to be more reasonable and more modern is good. Yeah. Um, I don't think, but I don't think people stop taking the LSAT because of the math issue. Um, oh, no, no, so, I'm not saying that yeah. at all. I think they're just going to, because you wouldn't want to then like say, oh, we're now we're accepting the GRE, so we won't accept the LSAT. What they're trying to do is increase access. So the more tests in their mind, the better, probably. Yeah, I, 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 um, of course, I mean, of course, that's the impetus for this. And, um, you know, Harvard's not the first to try it and won't be the last. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in terms of, you know, your listeners, I think that if people, you know, unfortunately this year, if people want to apply to law schools other than Harvard, this, the, the GRE isn't going to be enough. Um, right now, the GRE is only going to be enough for two schools yeah. um, in the whole country. So I don't think, you know, that's what I mean by this is not something that really affects people listening to the podcast today. Because you're applying to law school in the next 18 months, um, you're going to have to take the LSAT. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I, Harvard, I completely agree with in, you. Then apply again the next year and see if more schools are taking the GRE. But that's putting your future on hold for a lot of ifs. Yeah, no, no, I'm not I'm not encouraging anyone to take the GRE for this year or anything like that. I just yeah. it, it, my sense was when you were finished talking, it was just like this is probably might not even happen. And uh, my guess is or if it does, it would take a long time. My feeling is that within two years or something, even by the next yeah, cycle. I mean, 
it, it, we could see I, a lot of this. And I feel I like there's huge incentives. Quite that, that fast because I think we're going to have the schools lower down on the total pool are going to have to see data. And just like Harvard pulled its students to see what their GRE scores were, the other schools are going to do the same. And I'm just telling you from having, you know, worked as a dean of admissions for law schools, these things don't happen easy. The, these changes don't come come fast. And so, I mean, it could be that we're having a very different conversation about this five years from now and doing a nice little retrospective on it. But I don't see this impacting directly really anyone who's listening to your show today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll have to see. Cool. Yeah. Did I, that, that got pretty, pretty intense and involved for us guys. Usually we're pretty surface level. Yeah. You guys managed to shut me up, which doesn't usually happen very easily. <laughs> um, I am with Ben that if I'm a dean of a law school and Harvard does this, if I'm uh, any competing school down the down the ladder, I would immediately start accepting the GRE just because why not? More customers. Well, and we'll see. Yeah. I, I sort of hope you're right. You know, I've never seen anything happen that fast universally among law schools ever. I mean, I can't think of any change. Like, I mean, if things don't catch on. They tried evaluations. They didn't catch on. They got rid of evaluations, like instead of letters of rec. Like things don't just don't catch on fast in law school universes. Yeah. But but you know, I think this is worth talking about. This is worth the segment in your show. This is worth something for people to think about. If I were a dean of admissions at a law school, this is what I'd be talking about at my law school with, with the dean and with the, the trustees and the faculty. Um, absolutely. But I don't think it's anything that really needs to cause a lot of alarm in applicants today. Yeah, for now, it only impacts somebody who already has an elite GRE score who has a credible chance of getting into Harvard Law. Exactly. And that is really the point. And I'm really glad you said that because a lot of people are getting very excited. And I think what you just said is exactly right and on point. I mean, your shitty GRE score and your shitty GPA aren't going to get you into Harvard. <laughs> it's, your, it's your awesome GPA and your awesome GRE score that might get you into Harvard. Beautifully said. Yeah. And from, for once, it's not me cussing. So thank you. <laughs> cool. Well, I don't know. Ben, do you have any more questions? Or Anne, is there anything else on your radar that you'd like to talk about? So a couple things. I am working on a rewrite of the law school admission game. Because somehow four years have passed since the last edition, which is unbelievable to me. So um, I'm working on that. So if anyone, uh, I'm expecting it to be released in the fall, the new edition. So now's the time. If anyone who's read the law school admission game feels there's something I left out or something they want me to spend more time on or go more in depth on, um, tweet me, Facebook me at Anne Levine or um, at Anne Levine um, on Facebook and I would love to hear your feedback. Um, you guys both have, um, Nathan Ben, have been great about giving me some th new things, new quotes, new information to include, and I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I, I welcome any feedback. I'm excited to get an updated version out where I'm sure I will also talk about Harvard taking the GRE. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, Anne. Thanks so thanks much for, for coming on and giving us your insights. It's exciting to always talk with you. Thanks um, for having me, guys. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Alrighty, cool. So we have so many emails. Why are you arguing with Anne so much? What? <laughs> <laughs> what? I, I disagree. What? I mean, I'm just fucking with you. It's, it's what do we have on these uh, emails? Um. All right. So we have this this correction, which I guess is is relevant. So last time uh, we were talking, I don't know, episode eighty five in La La La, we were um, talking about Peter. 
And uh, he writes, he says, I just got to the end of episode 85, the LR discussion. And Ben said, doesn't Peter skip this part of the podcast? And he, he says, total misquote. When I said that in a recent email, it was in the context of having the LSAT behind me. I'd meant to say, believe it or not, even though I'm not studying for the LSAT, I just like you guys so much that I still listen. Well, thanks, Peter. Um, I get out a kick out of all of the BSing and about movies, book recommendations, etc. So, wow. Okay. I think I've heard this before. Some people keep listening after the LSAT's over. Yeah, it's awesome. You hear this? No, yeah, it's like the best thing I ever hear. It's, not, I can't believe it, but it's awesome. <laughs> what what can be what could possibly be interesting about what we say? Yeah. Well, Peter, I'm I'm glad you like it. That's cool. That's uh, flattering. Let's see here. Oh, so he goes on. He says you both talk, then talked about how this is the pure gold of the podcast, which it is. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, at least somebody is listening to those parts of the podcast, and um, it's incredibly valuable. So yada yada yada. And he gives cool. an update about, um, he says Ryan Gosling really is playing the piano, uh, like most of it, it seems like, in uh, La La Land, according to him. So that's uh, it's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. All right. So moving on, we have another one. Who's this from? Oh, this is about the uh, quantifiers. So I can't remember who wrote this, but... Jabron from the oh. car wash. Oh, Jabron from the car wash. Okay. What is that reference to? I don't know. Oh, know it's a is. reference to uh, a logic game. There was a. Do you remember the one with Marquita? Oh, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Game, yeah. Because I always think in terms of the the letters. So I don't like the names have no yeah place in my mind. Yeah, I should have figured that out. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So he asks, "Is there any rule of the English language that allows us to tell when the sentence A's are B's means?" Every single A is a B, and when A's are B's is a generalization that means there are at least some A's that are B's. I know what he's talking about here. I've actually briefly talked about it in one of the books I wrote on logical reasoning. In some sentences, right, you might say something like, people who eat cheese get angry. People who eat cheese get angry. On the LSAT, I would assume that means if you eat cheese, you always get angry. That's right. So okay. that that means that all people who eat cheese get angry. Yeah. Even though the word all is not there. And actually, that is consistent with at least some grammarians. I know that some studies have been conducted in which they say all, and everyone, and most people think that means all, and when they say any, like... 60% of people think that means all. And when they don't have a quantifier, only like 40% of people think that means all, but it actually is supposed to mean all. So if you don't have a quantifier, if you don't have the word all or any, you just say people who eat cheese get angry or whatever I said, okay. then that technically does mean all. But here's the issue, and I know what he's talking about. There are definitely some questions, and he cites one right here, that have these sort of universal claims, but the claim either might not actually be universal or maybe the LSAT is relying on you choosing the best answer, even though it's not a perfect answer, right? Okay. And uh, so one example I'm thinking of, if, if you said to someone, stocks are a great investment, well, 
and this is what I talked about in, in, in my book, stocks are a great investment. Technically, that means all stocks are a great investment because you didn't use any quantifier. You didn't say yeah. some stocks or most stocks. But it's really hard to swallow the idea that that person is saying that all stocks are a good investment. They're probably just talking about stocks yeah. in general or the idea. Yeah. So my advice is to look at the context yeah. and to try to figure out if it makes sense to take this as a literal interpretation or yeah. just to take it as a generalization, which sucks. People don't like that. They don't like saying these like sort of soft rules. Well, I'm sorry. You're going to be a lawyer. That's what you do. Lawyers, <laughs> lawyers interpret, they interpret, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you're going to, my one L year of law school, I had a class called statutory interpretation and it was about reading statutes and then trying to figure out what they mean. On the LSAT, you have to be flexible in your thinking, and you're not going to just be able to have some hard and fast rule that's, you know, oh, like uh, like a robot and just read it and say, oh, well, this has to 100% mean this, because you have to pick the best out of five answers, and sometimes you're going to need, like, a second interpretation of one of the statements in order to pick that correct answer. Yeah. So yeah, you can read it one way and none of the answers will make sense. But if you read it a different way, then one of the answers becomes correct. And then, well, that's the way you were supposed to be reading it. Exactly. And that's a very valuable skill to have. So if you're aware of this issue, then all the more power to you, even though there's no clear cut answer. The clear cut answer is, hey, it could be this way or that way. Whereas if you're not aware of this issue, you may just sort of Sometimes get it right or sometimes not because you're not yeah. necessarily aware of the potential interpretation that it means all. Right. And that could lead to the correct answer or not. Yeah. So, okay. I hope that clears that up a little bit. He then says, what is the logical meaning of few, almost all, and rarely? Let me just quickly talk about almost all. Almost all is an easy one. That just means most. Is that how you would interpret it? Uh, yeah, almost all, I would definitely say means just simply means most. So I know that people are going to be surprised by that, but I would just say it has to mean 51% or a hundred percent anywhere in between those I think is almost all. Yeah. I would, I would say that to keep things simple, I just tend to think of three categories. There's either some most or all, and most words can fall into one of those three categories. And then you don't have to worry about yeah, all these different nuances. I'm, I guess. Well, there's also none, but I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, all and none are almost the same. They're just like opposites, right? So, yep. Yeah, I would say some means anywhere between one and a hundred. Mm -hmm. uh, most means anywhere between fifty-one and a hundred. Mm -hmm. All means a hundred. None means zero. Yep, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Now he does raise this point, which has uh, happened before, and that's dealing with words like few. So if you say few A's are B, he says, does that mean that some A's are B? Short answer, yes. If few A's are B, then some A's are B. Yeah. Uh, or does that mean that most A's are not B? And I think in the context of some questions, it also does mean that. If few A's are B's, uh, then they're saying most A's are not B's. And so that's actually a situation where you can take away two interpretations from one sentence. Yeah. Whereas you couldn't say that with some, right? If they said some A's are B's, you couldn't turn around and say, oh, therefore, most A's are not B's. Because some goes from one to a hundred. Yeah. I got to say, overall, 
the nature of Gibran's question here. It's it's great that he's thinking about this. You know, it's clear mm. that he's like a thoughtful guy and he's putting a lot of effort in here. But yeah. he's also, I think, putting effort into sort of the wrong place. Um, he's getting just so caught up in these technicalities and he's not being flexible enough in his thinking. He's looking for like absolute hard and fast. You know, he's saying, I want to nail down precise meanings. And as much as I under understand why he would want to do that, I just don't think you can get that precise about lots of these things. When they say few A's are B, I think you just need to take that as, hey, some A's are B, probably not 50%, you know, probably less than 50%. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, but well, I don't know. And it's, I don't think you can just immediately say for sure most A's are not B. Yeah, there. Okay, so there is the problem with uh, a lot of these terms, and I think it's the issue that people run into. But I think it's good to be aware of, and that is like words like few or many or several or numerous or large, <laughs> large amount. All those terms are subjective. In other words, yeah. if I say that there are several people at my birthday party, that means some. Yeah, it means some, and yeah. so uh, when it says few A's are B's. To this individual is few um, a, a large number or a small number. To, you know, a, a large number may actually be few to them because they were expecting even more. And so they don't think that it's very big. So the subjectiveness of the word makes it hard to pin down exactly what it means. What do we know for sure? If some A's are B's that, or a few A's are B's, then you know that at least some are. That has to yeah. be, you can't say that there are no A's that are B's. And I think it's very likely that most A's are not B's. Yeah. I, I, there's a specific question, it's in an older test, that sort of plays off of that. And the qu correct answer assumes that few A's are B's means most A's are not B. Yeah. But again, it's, it's worth noting that, that, that the reason why we get there is because one of the answers has to be correct. And mm -hmm. that, you know, you can read it that way in order to make the right answer right. Yeah, but you didn't necessarily have to read it that way. And if they didn't have that answer there, then maybe you wouldn't have read it that way. So sure. you have to be flexible, is I guess what I'm saying. So one thing here, I, I think that the what he's grappling with is actually really valuable because he can become aware of the range of interpretation. So yeah. I agree with you that there are some there's some things we don't know. There's some gray areas, but being aware of how large that gray area is can be very valuable versus not knowing at all. I like this question. Is there a logical difference between few X's are Y and a few X's are Y? That's just adding the word a in front of that statement. So again, it's yeah. few X's are Y. I would interpret that to mean like not that many, some, but not that many X's are Y. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when he says a few X's are Y, I would definitely interpret that to mean some X's are Y and potentially even all of them. Yeah, yeah. So the first one has that potential limiting factor where it's like few X's are Y, okay, so maybe most are not, maybe. Right. Absolutely, I agree 100%. Yeah. And then a few X's are Y, okay, and maybe more. <laughs> yeah, That when you say a few X's are Y, that's just like, okay, well, here, these ones are for sure. These X's yeah. are for sure Y. And mm -hmm. if a few of them are Y's, then maybe all of them are Y's. We don't know yet. Yeah. Whereas that other statement, few X's are Y, I do think there has to be some sort of limitation in there. Mm -hmm. It certainly seems to imply that there's some limitation in there. Yeah. But I'd, I would have to see the context of the entire question.
you know, and the answer choices. Sure. I, but I think being aware of this uh, is exactly yeah. is is very valuable because um, a lot of times people are debating between two answer choices and they don't know what the difference is, and that's what separates someone who's probably scoring in the high one sixties with someone who's scoring in the mid one seventies or yeah. something like that. Sometimes or whatever range you want to look at, but those these nuances can make you tip the scale and be like, oh yeah, I now know for sure that D is right, even though it may seem like a minor change. Yeah. All right, so then this is kind of along the same lines. G's are rarely H's. Does this mean some G's are H's? What do you say for that? Rarely. Um, I'd have a hard time reading that to mean that that some G's are H's. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. seems like it's only limiting. G's are rarely sure. H's. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like law students are rarely happy. I, yeah, I don't know that that means that some law school law students are happy. That that statement was meant to say law students aren't happy. I think you have to yeah. think about like the intention of the premise, right? Why why was this premise included? Well, the premise was mm-hmm. included to say that law students aren't happy. The the, yeah. the purpose of that wasn't to tell. The, how could the purpose of that premise be to tell you that law students are happy? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I w- I would think that a statement like that, law students are rarely happy. I'm just saying, okay, that means that this doesn't happen very often and potentially never. I, I would be open to the possibility that never is a is a is a possibility there. What do you think? Sure. Yeah, I agree. I think that it, it's almost like some number and down. So he asks, does that mean that most G's are not H? And again, there I would say probably. Probably most G's are not H. If something happens rarely, it probably doesn't happen most of the time. Yeah, I think so. Again, it depends on the subjective nature yeah. of your interpretation of rarely. If you expect law students to be happy all the time and they're yeah. only happy 70% or not the the individual law students, but if 70% of law students are happy, then you might say, geez, they're yeah. rarely happy here because 30% of them are not happy. So that's subjective. I do think it probably means most are not. No, I agree. I, I think that's the most It's hard to read that and say, oh, they're rarely happy. Yeah, 70% of them are happy. Wait, what? That is, you know, that's hard to – you just said rarely. How's that 70%? So, yeah, I would, I would think if law students are rarely happy, I'd be pretty comfortable saying that that means less than 50%. No, I agree. And yeah. I would I would take it that way, but I would also just kind of have that thought in the back of my mind that it it's a subjective thing and yeah. so maybe this is a potential ambiguity. Yeah, ambiguity, man. I'm an atheist, you know? And people people ask me like th- sometimes when when I talk about atheism, people are like, "How is it possible that you, you know, like but 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 what happens when we die? What what happens when you die? I mean, how how can you live not knowing what happens when when you die? And I'm like, because well, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I it's it, there's ambiguity. I don't know. I don't know how we came to be here. I don't know why we came to be here. I don't know if it means anything. And I don't know if shit happens after we die. And I just don't know. And so I, I think, um, yeah, you you can't have too much certainty in your thinking. I think it's good to be flexible and be open to multiple different interpretations. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to go too sideways here on preaching about atheism, but no, no, that's fine. As long as we don't suggest that there's no boundaries, right? Because there obviously are boundaries. You're going to die. Oh yeah, for sure. 
At least, at least you're gonna die because you were born. Unfortunately, when were you born? Uh, 1975. 1975. Oh, a 70s baby, just like me. Yeah. So, unfortunately, we 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 were born too early, right? For the... Like in 100 years, 50 years from now, people maybe maybe people we'll never be die living. because yeah, of the I singularity. So. Yeah, I'm I'm I, I believe in that. Yeah, yeah, I think I do too. Yeah. Wow, we're really gonna freak out our audience now. <laughs> oh. and immortality well no actually it's not immortality it's um a mortality right because you could still die you just don't necessarily have to die like yeah. if you get hit by a car you're goner yeah yeah, yeah. It, but if we can figure out how to stop aging which i don't think is too far away i mean people are working on that right they got the the gene they're oh, yeah. zeroing in on it no there are very very smart people who believe that the first immortal baby has already been born yeah, and I, I don't, I, I'm fortunate. So, oh, what was that? Was uh, not, maybe not immortal, but you said amortal? Like you just. Amortal, yeah. Because you don't like you have don't dying have die. built into you. Yeah, okay, I see. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not, not that you're Whereas, like indestructible, <laughs> that, yeah. that you get run over by a truck and you still live, but, but, uh, yeah. but, but not that you're, you're just automatically going to die like we all are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one, one person I was listening to the other day, they were saying if you have, if you have enough money, and you can make it to 2050. Yeah. And you have enough money, yeah. then you might a mortality may be within your grasp. Yeah. Cuz you'll need the money, obviously, to pay for all this stuff. Oh yeah. But you also have to have, you know, you have to be alive by the time yeah. it's accessible. No, I mean, we're going to cure cancer, you know, and there are going to be like nanobots that live in your bloodstream and do shit for you. And yeah. they're going to be able to just like recreate eyeballs and and lungs and hearts and all that type of shit and so yeah it's it's that the uh the what the people who believe this believe that hey right now um the human lifespans are getting longer by what one month per year or something like that like the Mm -hmm. every year you live the average human lives one month longer Mm -hmm. because of medical advances and that yeah. with the escalating um, pace of you know technology because of the internet and everything else, that soon it'll be like, hey, if you live another year, then human lifespans have gone up by 13 months. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that happens, then it's possible that someone who could someone could be born and just live forever because the we're so good at medicine that that we can keep people alive for forever. Yeah, and th- yeah, this is like totally really legit, very bright people who actually believe this is true, like today right now. Well, another good analogy, and I'm sorry to go on this tangent, but I think it's very, very uh, relevant to it. And that is um, the Wright brothers, right? When they were building their planes uh-huh. uh, and trying to get them to fly, 98%, maybe 99% of the population thought flying is impossible. <laughs> We've never been able to do it before Yeah. for the history of you know the known world. And then there was a lot of religious arguments as well, right? Well, if if God wanted us to fly like the birds, uh, he would have given us that ability. He didn't. So therefore, it's not only physically impossible, it's like against, you know, oh, absolutely. holy law. Yeah, It's heretical to even think that humans could fly. Yeah. So they yeah. were getting like, you know, people are doubting them in their abilities, but also just saying like, you're almost like you're sinners. What you're trying to yeah. do is and and. I think the argument is exactly the same today. Of course, for like stem cell and stuff. Yeah. Right? Oh, doing this. Oh, you're meddling. You know, God, God didn't mean for you to be to live forever. God didn't mean for us to be able to manipulate our own 
genes or whatever. Yeah. So you have the you have the God side, but you also have even if you don't if you're like not making that religious argument, you're making the well, it's never been done before. This is just yeah. We've accepted this fate, yeah. and that lack, and then you know things will change, and as soon as they change, bam, like everyone you know gets on board, and within ten years you have everybody flying and <laughs> trying to figure out how to fly and race to the skies and see how far they can go. So, anyways, random stuff there, but awesome. This is making <laughs> me so happy. <laughs> Maybe this is what Peter is waiting for. So he says, please add one more phrase to the issue. Tends to. Uh, Tends to is like usually or majority or probably or likely. All these things mean um, most or more likely than not. Yeah, I'd say most. Tends. Oh, although mm, actually maybe not. Because. Oh, I definitely think tends to means most. You don't think so? I don't think so. I think it means positively correlated because um, cigarette smoking tends to cause cancer. That doesn't mean most cigarette smokers get cancer. That means it's positively correlated. I think it means some. I I think it means, uh, yeah, positive correlation, I I think. No, see, I think think that if smoking tends to cause cancer, it is going to cause it in most cases. Wow. Yeah, I'm, oh, hold on. Let's, going online. The, the dictionary god of um <laughs> i mean the dictionary also says that you can interpret literally to mean figuratively so i'm not you know well i actually am pretty impressed with how consistent the definition is with when it comes to some most and all actually okay uh da, 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 da. okay well it's not giving us a quantifier here why not tend to verb Hmm. A tendency. Damn, it's not helping. Hmm. Well, we'll have to sit on that one, I guess. Yeah, uh, which is fine. Um, it's it's ambiguous. Uh, you know, listeners, if they see tends to in an LSAT question, can certainly write into us, and um, we can talk about it on a future episode. But um, I'd be open to both possible interpretations. And... I would I would definitely not be. No, okay. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. I just had to go against you there. I'm arguing with everybody today. So it it for sure means um, non-zero, right? It for sure means it sometimes happens. Yeah. And yeah. it could mean most. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Okay. Are we done with Gibran? I think so. I mean, he asked, are there any other unusual or rare quantifier words that come to mind? I would say, actually, don't worry so much about the rare ones. Worry most about the word many. The word many means some because it's mm. subjective. Yet a lot of times, uh, like in strengthening questions or weakening yeah. questions, which you're looking for strong language, they'll throw in the word many, which sounds like a lot. You'll apply your own understanding of many to mm. that word. But because many could just be five, it's subjective. Uh, it just depends on what that person thinks is many. What are many snakes? Oh, I saw five snakes. Five yeah. snakes today. It's many, that and, many, and therefore, yeah. the <laughs> that <laughs> that would be many to me too. Um, but it might not be very many, and thus not most, and thus not have much of an impact on the argument. Yet you think it does because you're applying this big number to that word. So be yeah. careful of the word many. Many means some. Yep. Yeah, we can say that for sure. Cool. Thanks, Jabron. Thank you. All right.
So this is from Matt from D.C. He said, I was just reading Taleb's, Nassim Taleb's Anti-Fragile, which I didn't know had come out. I'm actually interested in seeing what Taleb has to say and found a passage where he describes anti-fragility in a way that sounds like your LSAT philosophy of going slower to go faster. And he provides us a snapshot of what he wrote here. And so anti um in anti-fragile what does it say it says indeed this is referring to economic growth (laughs) growth was very modest this is in the past apparently less than one percent per head throughout the golden years surrounding the industrial revolution the period that propelled europe into domination but as low as it was it was robust growth unlike the current fool's race of states shooting for growth like teenage drivers infatuated with speed okay that is poetic and maybe true bottom line is i guess it's better to have growth that's slow and solid rather than fast and fragile sure yeah if you wanted to analogize that to the lsat you certainly can yeah i might you know point out that like improvement on logical reasoning people People do frequently make like big jumps in games uh, all of a sudden, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in, in like a week or two, you can totally start getting six more points on the games. You know, that sometimes happens. Sure. But growth on the logical reasoning does tend to happen more incrementally. And so if we were going to take this advice and just think, hey, I'm prepping for the June LSAT, I've got three months still, you know, what do I need to do about logical reasoning? And it's like, hey, if you could just start getting one more question right per week mm-hmm. for your test overall, if you could start getting one more question right, uh, one, one more point per week, mm-hmm. that growth would be awesome if you could just sustain that for a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do think the way to get there is to just be focused on accuracy. The same things we always talk about, right? Slow, calm, yeah. careful, answering the questions correctly, really understanding what you're doing, then you're going to be building um, a solid foundation for for your score and you're going to be growing robustly. Yeah, I think people have to th- think about uh, their their preparation uh, processes. Like it. You have to look at the whole thing, basically, right? So if someone comes to you and they say, hey, I got 19 out of 20 questions correct – and then someone else came to you and said, I got 22 out of 26 questions correct. It's like, yeah, so one person did get more points correct, but they're getting more wrong too. So, yeah. you know, the the first person may actually be in a better position in the long run. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. If you tell me I did, I only did 15 questions and I got all 15 of them right, you're, you're awesome and you're totally on the way. You're, you're, on, mm-hmm. you're on track. But if you say, oh, I did, I got 17 out of 25, I'm like, mm, you're not understanding what you're doing. You know, you're mm-hmm. getting them right, but you're, you've got to be getting so many questions right for the wrong reasons if you're doing that. Right. Yeah. You're, just, you're skimming the surface and yeah, okay. You, you've got some skills and you're, you're avoiding some of the traps, but you're also falling into a lot of the traps and mm-hmm. you're, and you're not reading carefully enough and you're making a bunch of silly mistakes and you're going to have to stop that at some point or else you're going to you're going to curtail your own future development. So yeah, mm-hmm. that student who gets 15 out of 15 today is very likely to get 16 out of 16 tomorrow. And that's where the really big scores come from is people who just don't miss questions. Yeah. 
I really, you know, it is definitely not a race to the end of the section. It's more a, hey, can you figure this question out? Can you solve this puzzle and, and get it right and feel good about your answer? Mm-hmm. Next one? Yeah. Do you want to take this? Uh, sure. <laughs> Gave you the long email. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I That's fine. I like hearing myself talk. So I'm just trying to say, can we say this name here? I don't see it saying don't, so I'm going to. Uh, this is Luis. Luis says, hey guys, I'm a recent listener to your podcast. I've been noticing that y'all are very critical of those that have an interest in going to law school. So I wanted to get your thoughts on my life and plan. 27 years old, started self-studying for the LSAT, planned to take it in September of 2017. Originally thought I wanted to attend law school after I graduated from undergrad in 2012. I took a prep course from a local guy here in Austin, and I was absolutely miserable. Uh, I was working full-time for a legislator during that time, and I enjoyed that more than LSAT studying. That's a bummer. Um, If you're not enjoying studying for the LSAT, I think you're doing it wrong. Um, I don't think it has to be miserable. Do you, Ben? No. No. And... I think my, part of it might be, I think, this sense of like, oh, I have to do all of this yeah. by this time. Whereas I feel like it's so much more valuable to sit down, tackle a few questions, and really understand them. If you really understand oh, those yeah. few questions, and then you're done for the day because you don't have any more time, fine. But yeah. you learn something from them as opposed to, well, I've got to get through 20 questions and, no. um, okay, I got them done. But did you learn anything from them? Yeah. yeah. And you do not need to study 20 hours a week for the LSAT. You don't even need to study 15 hours a week for the LSAT. I mean, if you're taking a class, that's probably eight hours a week. Mm-hmm. But then on the days you're not in class, do an hour worth of work, you know, and, and do do less than 15 hours a week worth of studying. And just do that for a really long time. Keep yourself happy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. if you're self-studying, I think you're not taking a class. I think you can totally do one hour a day. We talk about this all the time, do an hour a day focusing on comprehension because you're understanding the questions. You're not going to be nearly as miserable. You know, if you do a hundred, like do a full test, you know, and get half of them, right. I mean, yeah. that sucks, but yeah. do one section, focus on accuracy, get 80% or 90% of the ones you attempt get those ones, right. And then really dig into the ones that you missed and see what you can learn from those ones and just do that every day. And I think you'll be quite a bit happier. The other thing people, I think, need to realize is that I was just talking to someone yesterday and they were saying they wanted to talk about flaw questions. So we we talked about some of the flaw questions that they had gotten wrong. And then they said, oh, we don't have enough time. And I really wanted I really wanted to talk about strengthening questions. And I was like, look. Everything we just talked about with flaw questions is going to apply directly to strengthen questions. Because in flaw questions, you're trying to figure out what's wrong with the argument. And in strengthen yep. questions, you're trying to figure out what's wrong with the argument. So yep. sometimes you don't realize that you're diving in and your effort into a particular question, even just one question, as long as you really learn from it, can have an impact on a whole host of other totally, well, not totally different. You might think that they're totally different, but uh, different question types and thus have an impact on a much bigger part of this test than you think. Even even inference questions, when you're trying to figure out what you must infer from a certain set of facts, what must be true given those facts, you might think, oh, all I'm thinking about is must be true questions right now. And boy, I've really got to get over to those like flaw questions. Well, 
lo and behold, they're testing the same skill, which is in a flaw question, you're given facts, premises, and you're asking yourself, why don't these facts prove this conclusion? It's the same kind of analysis. It's just a different angle. So that's, again, where like zeroing in on something, really understanding it is going to help you with that and a whole bunch of other things on the test. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier than you think, huh? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to skip some of this stuff here. It's um, He does work with veterans. His long-term girlfriend and he purchased a home and she's in grad school and racked up a bunch of debt. He has a 2.89 undergraduate GPA, which sucks. And he is thinking that he needs a 170 or higher to get into UT Austin in order to stay in Austin because that's where he has, uh, that's where they have their home. Um, he'd have to look at the law school calculator to even, to see if a 2.89 is ever going to get into Austin. It's, you know, that's, we're talking about top 14 school now, and it's possible that even a, right. Isn't that, yeah. UT Austin. That's, I think so. It's it's up there. It's way up there. So it's very possible that, that like, they're just never admitting a 2.89, no matter what. So he might, that ship might have sailed based on his undergraduate grades. But, you know, if he really does get a, a, a 175 or something, maybe he gets in as this, like, extreme splitter. He'd be, like, the highest LSAT and lowest GPA in the class, probably. But yeah. that does happen sometimes. Um, however, he, let's see, self-studied, eventually took the LSAT in June 2014 just to see what would happen. That's a bad idea. And scored a 146, which was the same as his diagnostic. So whatever he's doing for prep here is really not working. He, he took a some program... Uh, and then he was self-studying with the materials. He didn't like the program. Then he's self-studying with the same materials from that same program. Hmm. And it's, I don't know, that just seems like banging your head against the wall because you're not making any progress. Um, Yeah. Okay, since 2014, I've left the Veterans Commission and started working at the state's budget office, doing policy analysis and working with legislators to implement some of these recommendations. He's also continued to attend Texas State University, but have grown very frustrated with the MPA program uh, because of the lack of experience that students have in government, only completed half the credits necessary for the degree, uh, gotten a new perspective on government work and how industry associations work in the government process. I've started to notice industry reps who serve as the association's lobbyist during the state's legislative sessions and as general counsels when the legislature is not in session. This is a job that I can see myself working in. The only problem is that I do not have a law degree. Thought long and hard about the decision, came to the conclusion that I'm going to have more opportunities with my experience in my line of work with a law degree than an MPA. Um, okay, cool. You know, only you can make that decision, right? You, you have to figure that out for yourself. Mm-hmm. So if, a, if it's going to be a law degree, then if it's going to be a law degree for you, fine. I've started self-studying again for the LSAT, this time using PowerScore books and watching YouTube videos. I have found LSAT studying fun and enjoyable this time around, so I'm hoping that's a good sign. Of course that's a good sign, yeah. If you're enjoying what you're doing, then you should probably keep doing that. Yep. Uh, That's great. During this time of studying, my longtime girlfriend and I are also getting married in June, And we are currently selling our house to free up our finances and be able to move wherever we please. Okay, this sounds good. Yeah. Because if you're going to be applying to law school, you need to apply broadly. You need to not be just stuck with only one possible school. You need to be, 
you need to have a cast a really wide net. Mm-hmm. This is the part that I think was really interesting, and this is where we we need to give Luis, I think, some counseling. It says, I only have about $8,000 in student loans so far, but my soon-to-be wife has about 12 times that amount. So <clears throat> she's already hundred grand in debt, and he's got mm-hmm. eight. Financing my law degree is probably my biggest fear, and putting my soon-to-be wife and I in future bankruptcy. I do have a pension that I have considered draining to finance my law degree. Basically, should I go or should I not go, and what, what should I do? Yeah. So the part when he said draining my pension, that's when I said, that's when I was like, oh my god, please do not do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, scary. It'd be better to go to a lower ranked school, try to get some scholarship money instead. That's what this clearly to me, Luis, with his whole plan and his bad undergraduate grades and everything. This this clearly seems to me like if you're gonna get a JD, I really just don't want you to pay a lot for it. Well, especially since it's just for career advancement, right? It's not like they care what school he went to. Yeah, because he's already got these connections. It seems like he's already got these. Well, if that's true, right, like you're really doing well at work, if you've got these connections in the state's budget office Mm -hmm. and if they, if they're telling you that you can come back and work there, then yeah, why does it matter what school you go to? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just afraid that with the 2.89, I don't think Luis is getting into any school that is so prestigious that it would be worth paying for. Yeah. You know, yeah. not not when you compare it to all of the possible scholarship offers that he might get. So any school that he, you know, let's say he does get his 170, which mm-hmm. is obviously no guarantee. But if he does get his 170, then I would think he's going to be getting some really nice offers from some school somewhere. Yeah. Some lower schools are going to say, hey, we really want that 170. We'll ignore your 2.89 uh, because that's not too far away from <laughs> our 25th percentile anyway. Yeah. And so please come, here's some money. Don't drain your pension, Luis. It's awesome that you only have $8,000 of undergraduate debt. <laughs> that is not a reason to go six figures into debt on law school, though. Yeah. Uh, do you hear that from people, Ben? I hear that from people, and it dr- kind of drives me nuts. People go, oh, well, I don't have any debt from undergrad, though. So, that, and they use that like, so then, therefore, I, I, I don't care if I borrow a lot of money for law school. Yeah. Yeah, it's concerning. That's not good thinking. I mean, I'm glad you don't have debt. (laughs) Not having debt is awesome. Good. You don't have debt? Okay, good. Let's keep it that way. Why would you then, you know, that's just, (laughs) that's silly. That's like, well, I don't have any other addictions, so I'm going to do heroin. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's exactly the same, yeah. (laughs) It's 100% the same thing. (laughs) Except that heroin is not as bad for you as two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt (laughs) math on the other hand (sighs) Uh, yeah i mean i think every decision needs to be made on the margin not based on how not based on how much debt you already have granted if you already have debt (laughs) boy you should really be serious about not taking any more but at the same time i still think it should be made on the margin like if you're gonna if you're gonna get a good offer or a scholarship offer to a a lower ranked school then you need to weigh whether or not it's worth paying more for a higher ranked school. And it rarely is, but sometimes it is if it's an awesome school. Yeah. I don't know. Or where you want to be. Yeah. 
maybe it's worth it. But that decision is not based on necessarily your current finances, but on your future finances and what you expect to get out of it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's uh, move on to this next one. Yeah. So I just wanted to share some following joy success with someone who was directly responsible for it. I took the February LSAT and scored a potentially life-changing 174. Yeah, that's potentially life-changing. It was my first attempt, and I fell at the top end of my range of my last 10 prep tests. Two pieces of advice this podcast has given me in the past are what I credit to going from a guy plateaued in the mid-high 160s and a guy who hit mid-170s. For me, most importantly, the strategy of taking my time to get the first 10 LR questions saved my LR score. After I slowed down and learned that I need to be getting to be getting at least 9 out of 10 on the first 10, I began to intuit fundamentals. Is intuit even a word, by the way? Uh, it's an annoying word, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, I do think it's a real word. <laughs> Yeah, it's a word I never use. But anyways, okay, so he began to understand, yeah, understand. Yeah, the, the fundamentals yeah. on an intuitive level in a very ah. deep way, right? Yeah. On easier questions, and that allowed me to into the head of the test writers on later questions. I think that's a really good insight, despite the word into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is so true. Uh, just last night, we were doing level one questions in class. Yeah. And I told everyone, I said, look, if I didn't say anything to you about these questions, I am supremely confident that you could get the vast majority of them correct because the bad answers are so bad. The yeah. wrong answers are so bad. But I want you to take a second here and really understand the passage. Tell me what you think of it. Tell me whether you think it's a good argument or a bad one. And to the extent you can, predict the answer. Yeah. And then they started doing things that they normally don't do but because it was an easier question, they could actually attempt to predict it, right? And yep. start developing those prediction scores. So this insight yep. is huge. And um, can we say his name, her name? It doesn't say not to, so we can go ahead and say Jay. Jay thank yeah. you very much. I think this is very, very wise. Additionally, the RC questions are essentially all must-be-true questions. That idea fixed a major impasse in my brain. I still never got... RC. I'm reasonably confident it's the reason my score wasn't higher. Oh, but this podcast advice kept me from anking. Cool. Yeah, yeah, reading comprehension questions are must be true questions. Almost all of them. It's it's yeah. an, that's a very evidence based portion of the test, and you just have to be picking questions that basically I'm picking this answer because that's what the passage said. That's what you should be doing on almost all reading comprehension questions, even when it looks like. They're asking you to infer something or uh, intuit something or, uh, you know, speculate on what the author would say. It's uh, it's not about what the author would say next. It's not about where they might go. It's about where they've already been. So on reading comprehension, just make sure you're picking answers that have evidence to support them. Yeah, I think that's very uh, good advice. I would want to clarify one thing. I, I tend to break the reading comp questions into two groups, must-be-true okay. questions and structure questions. Uh, and structure questions are asking you, hey, what's the, what's the role of this paragraph or what's the, organize, what's the organization of the passage as a whole or what's the primary purpose? 
But these things are still like if you think of them as must be true questions, you're still going to be fine because yeah. what they are, what the answer choices are doing is they're describing what's happening or why it's happening. And so you have to ask yourself, is this describing exactly what's happening or not? And so if you ask yourself, does this have to be true? Is this what's happening? Uh, you're going to be fine. Again, I would make that distinction in my mind because I see them as slightly different, but um, it's still kind of all on the same vein. There's only 3% of these questions are, uh, 3 or 4%, at least on the last 10 tests, are strengthened questions or weakened questions. So very rare. Yeah. So a few other notes. As someone who works full-time in Europe, taking the LSAT is a pain in the ass. Okay, good to know. You never get a detailed score report, and the instructions for my test center specifically were absolute garbage. Okay, the trip also required time off work, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's going to be true for, like, non-standard test places, right? Or did he take it in February? He took it in February, so maybe he just didn't get his score because it was a February LSAT. Yeah, I think that's why. Yeah, I do know that if you do take it at a time that's a little like not right close to the normal time, they end up giving you a non-disclosed test. But anyways, um, two funny things I overheard uh, at my test center. Oh, there's there's really no way to prepare for this test. <laughs> We've heard that before. Good. That's it's there's that that myth is out there. You know. Oh yeah, no, they specifically designed this test so that you can't prep for it. <laughs> That's like exactly wrong. That is one hundred percent not true. I wonder why those myths persist. It's like maybe it's like comforting because well, I can't do anything. So heck, shucks, my um, fate is determined. So it's not my fault if I fail. People also think the Earth is ten thousand years old. And that it was created by some magical being. So I don't know why people think things that are, <laughs> that have no <laughs> grounding in reality. I don't know. Okay. Well, <laughs> for all our uh, loyal <laughs> listeners out there who were mildly offended by what Nathan just said, let's let's focus on this for a second. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, yeah, I, I agree. If people believe weird things, I, this is weird though. It's it's strange. It does persist. Um, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, though, I think you probably disagree. Oh, here's another thing he heard. Oh, you can't practice in Louisiana unless you go to LSU. And then he asked, "Where do they find these people?" <sighs> yeah, I have to. I do have to wonder. I know um, when I took my test, some guy in line turned to the person next to him and asked something like what kind of sections are on this test or what do they test on this test yeah, and yeah. i was just like dude you need to get out of line right now yeah. <laughs> go home and download the june 2007 lsat it's yeah. free hey i had a on i just triggered something um yeah. Did you know, according to a recent student of mine who had a no-show on record, Okay. they told me that a no-show does not count as an attempt. Oh, I've heard this before because you didn't get exposed to the test. You didn't actually sit for it. Yeah, so if you... But that's... I'd be nervous. Whenever someone asks oh, me about that, I always tell them to confirm with LSAC because my understanding was you had to withdraw to avoid that. Right. But maybe maybe not. If you withdraw, it doesn't even show up on your record at all. If you no-show, it does show up on your record that you no-showed. But I mm -hmm. have a student recently who had a no-show and two attempts and was able to register for this upcoming uh, June test. So again, oh, you, you okay. definitely have yeah. to contact LSAC uh, to make sure about this. And hey, you know, while we're on it, on that topic, we might as well talk about this whole two years, three times in two years thing. 
Yes. Yeah. What What was this back and forth like? It got two different answers, right? I've yeah. So I've got students, listeners, and students who have gotten differing answers from the LSAC. Um, this year, the fall test is in September, not October, mm-hmm. and that means that if you have taken the LSAT three times in the last two years, you, people are wondering, hey, does my October 2015 test expire? In enabling me to take the September 2017 test because that's, um, it it is by calendar. It's less than two years. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I had one student who called the LSAC repeatedly and was told over the phone that she was not going to be eligible to take the September test because she had three attempts, uh, starting with October, 2015. And that mm-hmm. the September 2017 test was not after the October, it was not two years after the October 2015 test. So the October 2015 test had not yet expired off of her record. And so she was going to have to take December instead. But then we have listeners who have um, gotten written confirmation from the LSAC that they are treating the October test as if it did, October 2015 as if it did expire. Yeah. So. I think the truth is we just don't know. The LSAC, as always, is you know cryptic. Their website doesn't really explain it. It just says three times in a two-year period, and it doesn't really say exactly how they calculate that. But if you have taken it three times, and October 2015 was one of those attempts, or was the, was the first one of those attempts, then you need to contact LSAC to see if you're going to be able to take the September 2017 test. Well, these these inconsistent answers from LSAC reps is exactly what happened with the nursing mom, right? Right. So it sounds like you need to keep knocking on heaven's door until they tell you what you want to hear. In fact, yeah. in this case, I would just sign up for it. Right. If you register, then I think you're registered. I mean, I don't know yeah. that they – I guess they could always just say, oops, sorry, clerical error or something. But yeah. um, it does seem like they are surprisingly loose with this restriction, uh, looser than I would have thought they would be. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. All right. So I had a circular logical, uh, a circular game. Huh. That's interesting. Haven't seen those in a while. I crushed it because I had taken all the logic games in preparation. And I didn't freak out when I saw it, even though I hadn't done one of them since probably October. Cool. Anecdotally, I still get the feeling that many people are taking the LSAT because they have no idea what they want to do with their lives. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're right. As, as much as the numbers are dropping on the application side, that doesn't mean that the fringe candidates have stopped applying. They yeah. should be more, there should be more motivation for folks to dominate the LSAT as they are still competing against students they can beat if they just dominate this test. This is exactly what uh, Ann was saying, right? The top scores are, are dropping out. So if you can get a top score in the LSAT, you're gonna you're gonna be in a more competitive position than you were before. Yeah. If you get a mid score, it sounds like you're competing against the same number of mid scores yeah. as you apply. Yeah, it, it's but it's a double edged sword there, right? So it's like, why are those top scorers dropping out? The top well, score, they're getting the message, right? <laughs> yeah, they're dropping out because they realize this is not a game they want to even be playing. So it's yeah. like they've decided, like, oh fuck that, I don't want to be a lawyer. That sucks. And then you're like, oh, but, oh, good, good for me, you know, <laughs> less competition for this shitty career. So, yeah. Well, this, yeah, it's all based on the assumption that you want to do this. If you want to do this yeah. and you can score well, or you're not there yet, but you're willing to put in the time to get there, it sounds like it's worth it because yeah. there are fewer of those in the mid-160s and up. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, and I'm not ta- trying to completely shit on it. There are people who really are cut out for this. They know what lawyers do, and they really, you know, this is the thing that's really the right thing for them. And if that's you, then, yeah, you're in luck, because there's a lot of people who are not going to law school anymore. So the mm-hmm. admission standards are dropping at almost every school. The double-edged sword there, again, though, is like, okay, so, but now your degree is going to be less prestigious, because there are less, you know, less kick-ass people going to these schools. So that just means that it's not as awesome as it used to be. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, I like this joke here in the last line. If you ever need to hire a street sign flipper, I imagine, once I finish my JD, I'll qualify for for the position. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah, if I saw someone applying for a street street sign flipper job and one of them had a JD on it, I'd be very impressed. I would, I would consider that person exactly the right type of person that I want for <laughs> diligent street sign flipping. Poor soul probably needs a job to pay for his education. Yeah. So, Hey, you know, um, also the robots are coming to take your jobs because I was on, I took a road trip uh, last week. I went to, uh, I did a day trip to Mexico. I went to Ensenada uh, for the day. I drove down there. Okay, cool. And but on the way down there in San Diego somewhere, I believe it was, uh, unless maybe it might have been in Tijuana. But anyway, I saw a one of those street signs, you know, flipping mm-hmm. around, but mm-hmm. it was being flipped by a robot. It was a robotic street sign flipping <laughs> thing. <laughs> oh, now I can't even do street flight, street sign flipping. Oh well. No. All right. All right. That was Jay. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, thanks, Jay. All right, Mike, the Nyquil guy. Oh, this is the yeah. guy who what? He drank Nyquil because he couldn't fall asleep, and then he went into the test drugged. <laughs> yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a, he's a really fun um, guy. He took a class from me here in LA, and he also did my online class. But yeah, he's the one who reported in about his uh, his trying to drinking Nyquil the night before and and being like zonked out during the test and everything. But then he eventually totally kicked ass on the LSAT. We gave that update. He ended up scoring 170 something or 170 official. Yeah. Okay, good. Oh wait, I might be confusing that with the next email. My bad. I think, no, I actually think Mike scored higher than 170. Um, Anyway, here are all the updates. Uh, got into George Washington, $150,000 scholarship. Got into cool. USC, $157,000 scholarship. Got into Washington University in St. Louis with a full tuition plus a $21,000 stipend. Whoa. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, on the downside, you have to live in St. Louis. Um, <laughs> you ever been to St. Louis, Ben? No, I don't think I have. Uh, the Arch is awesome, dude. The Arch is amazing. If you go to St. Louis, you have to go to the Arch, and I would definitely recommend going up inside of the Arch. But okay. other than the Arch, man, St. Louis is not somewhere that I would want to live. Okay, got into UCLA with a $90,000 scholarship. Got into Cornell with a $150,000 scholarship. Got into Duke and says scholarship pending. So now we're in the top 14. Columbia, it says decision deferred what does that mean exactly i think it's probably just like wait list okay anyway congratulations on all that mike and this is you know mike worked really hard at the test and took the test multiple times and you know wasn't sure if he should retake and finally took it again and took it again got this awesome score and then look at just all of the life-changing type of shit that happens when you do that i mean that's just that's awesome so (laughs) that's 
really, congratulations. And those offers are only going to get better because it sounds like Mike is um, working, you know, working those offers and trying to uh, get them bumped up a little bit. And um, yeah, that's excellent. Good job. So one thing, by the way, uh, this, this is awesome. This is great. This is all exciting news. It would be really helpful if we knew what the balance was, right? Yeah, when it says George yeah. Washington gets 150K, does that mean that – it sounds like full, um, but, but how much not. is left? Yeah. yeah. 157. You can't, it's hard to compare these numbers. Yeah, right. Totally. And and just because one school costs more doesn't mean it's better, right? Like I could make a sure. law school – we've talked about this before. Like make a law school where the tuition is $500,000 a year. And then give everybody a four hundred thousand dollars scholarship, and yeah. you know, oh wow, look at this gigantic scholarship. Well, no, you're still paying me a hundred thousand to come to school. Yeah. So people really should be thinking about it as tuition and expenses minus whatever the scholarship is, and then the, that number that's remaining. You know, more like not George Washington is giving me one hundred and fifty grand, but hey, after the one hundred fifty grand, here's how much I'm going to have to give George Washington. That's the, the much better way to be thinking about it. And while we're on that topic, I mean, I, also, he doesn't say anything in here about the scholarship renewal requirements. Mm, and yeah. at these better schools, I think the renewals are usually easier. Okay. But at a lower ranked school, he needs to be really worried about the gotcha scholarship offer where they um, take it away from you in your second year. Yeah. I remember on an old episode, you and Ben discussed the LSAC index formulas and how they were of little value without having a fuller picture. Recently, I created an Excel chart that uses the index formulas published by LSAC to determine a student's target schools. By calculating what a 25th, 50th, and 75th percentile student looks like at each school, based on the ABA 509 reports, this calculator highlights schools within a student's range. I made the document shareable and downloadable through Google Docs. Please feel free to share it with your students and the thinking LSAT audience. I go into Sweet. more details on how it works on top law schools, which you shouldn't be looking at top law schools, but um, <laughs> because it'll make you crazy. But yeah. anyway, we will uh, make sure to post a link uh, to the Google Doc and to the um, the post on top law schools. Yeah, this is cool. I'm looking at it right now. So you put in your LSAT score, uh, let's say 165, and ooh, we don't have the... That previous listener, 289, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you oh, want to cool. ch- check Austin. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that guy? He was shooting for 170, right? Yeah, he said 170 with a 2.89. Yeah. So 170 with 2.89. Hmm. Well, at least based on this, he's got some color coding uh, functionality here. So as soon as you put those in, get a bunch of greens and reds. Yeah. Let's see. Find Austin. Oh, Austin's not in here. Or maybe it's. I'm not seeing it. Maybe the data is not available. Well, anyway, yeah, this is pretty cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, cool. We'll post that on uh, thinkinglsat.com. Yeah. Awesome. You can email the show if you uh, write to help at thinkinglsat.com. Both Ben and I will receive that message. And we will put your questions on the agenda for a future episode. Uh, you can tweet me at Infox. You can tweet Ben at Strategy Prep. You can tweet the show at Thinking LSAT. Ben and, and I both work with people around the world via our online classes and via Skype tutoring. So if you're in you know some backwater like St. Louis and you need an LSAT tutor, LSAT class, uh, definitely consider giving me or Ben a shot. Yeah, I would just add to that. 
I talked to someone else two nights ago who uh, just signed up for a Kaplan class. They started talking about what they were going over, and it just made me slightly nauseous again. Ugh. And I, I was I was even offering him. I said, "Look, try to get a refund, and whatever you have to pay them, I'll take that off of the class. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, just don't waste your next three months." In there, picking up bad habits, getting confused, wasting your time. Um, even if he, he he was planning on taking the test in September, so I was like, in there too. Like, why not shoot for June right now? But in any case, if you're in some far off place and the only thing around you is Kaplan, look at Nathan's online class or my online class. It's I would just feel so much more confident. I mean, I know that's a self serving statement, yeah. but I'd feel so much more confident in your time spent than your time spent sitting in that classroom hearing who knows what. Especially if you're already a podcast listener, right? If you, if you can stomach us, (laughs) (laughs) if you already, if you've decided for whatever reason that you're going to listen to us for an hour and a half, then you really should be taking an LSAT class from one of us (laughs) because why would you take it from anybody else? And the, the technology is amazing, right? I mean, the online classes just work awesome. Um, tutoring on Skype works awesome. We record the podcast on Skype. If you know, why can't we use Skype to do LSAT tutoring with this, with the tutoring, we use video too. Right. So yeah, yeah, give us a shot. And of course, yes, this is a self-serving, um, announcement, but just because it's self-serving doesn't mean it's not correct. That's right. So to find Nathan's online class, you go to foxlsat.com, right? Yep. And yours is strategyprep.com. Yep, strategypep.com. So I uh, hope we uh, can add you to the roles and get you headed in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.